This program is rated D for dog. It contains sniffing, scratching and doggy themes. Hello and welcome to the Top Dog Podcast where we meet people who do amazing things for and with dogs. My name is Adrian Plitzko. Death is a topic none of us can avoid. We will face it sooner or later. And that's why today's Top Dog podcast is dedicated to this rather uncomfortable and to some extent disturbing chapter of everyone's, including dogs, life. If you tell someone, I believe dogs may feel love more deeply than we do, they're outraged. But logically, there's no reason why they shouldn't have access to deeper emotions than mm. we do. So that was something I wanted to explore. I can't say that I've been entirely successful. As a matter of fact, he has been successful, very much so, maybe not in finding an answer to that particular question, but definitely in writing and selling books. Jeffrey Mason. He has more than 30 up his sleeve. He's a New York Times best-selling author and trained psychoanalyst. Jeffrey Mason came to fame with his criticism about Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic methods, but mostly so with his books about the emotional life of animals. I will talk to him about his latest book, Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. If you have gone through the death of a dog, of your dog, the most treasured companion in your life, then this book is the right one for you. And when we come into our arrangements, um, when we sit with families in the arrangement room, he will often follow us in if the family are happy. Um, and you will tend to find he will find the person who needs the most comfort out of the group um, to be sitting beside. And he just places his head on their lap when they're sitting there most of the time. That's Billy, an 11 years old Border Collie Cross Kelpie. He's a so-called funeral dog, but let's call him a miracle dog. Billy looks after the customers of the funeral parlour, Simplicity Funerals in Perth, Australia. He's a miracle dog, says his owner Bronwyn Medhurst, because he's very understanding with the customers that come to the funeral parlour in order to say goodbye to their deceased family member. Billy knows how to comfort them. It's that stupid parrot again. Pirate looked up. The kid kookaburras were gathering around him. They had flown by when they heard the splash and wondered what had happened. He smells like a wet dog. I think he wants to become a fish now. Yeah, a stinky dead fish. Let's throw him back into the water. This is episode number 14 in our audiobook series about the lost kookaburra and his friends, a bunch of kind and funny dogs. Pirate is struggling to find help for Stelzi, who got bitten by Tiger the Snake. His only hope are the naughty kookaburras. They are the only ones capable of locating Tiger and take her to the hospital where the doctors can identify the anti-venom for Stelzi. But as you heard, the kookaburras are naughty. They do not take Pirate seriously. Will Pirate manage to convince them to help him? Come, sit, stay. 
Jeffrey Mason has written over 30 books about psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, about psychoanalysis and about the emotional life of animals. I suppose Jeffrey Mason came to fame with his book, The Assault on Truth, where he, may I say, questions to some extent Freud's psychoanalytic methods. Anyway, the general public started to become aware of Jeffrey Mason after he published books about animals like uh, When Elephants Weep, The Pig Who Sang to the Moon or Dogs Never Lie About Love. His latest book is called Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. In a nutshell, it's an exploration of human grief after the loss of a pet. It is a book for anyone who has gone through the death of a dog or an animal companion. Jeffrey Mason, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, Adrian. Before I ask you to tell us more about your new book and about how evident or justified human grief is when losing a dog, I would like to know how you came about to write about the emotional life of animals. Looking at your biography, I can gather that you respect and cherish all sorts of animals, but above all, you seem to be a great dog lover. That's correct. Well, The way I came to it was because my um, life in the world of psychoanalysis came to an abrupt end when I was fired from my position with the Freud archives and was, had my license to practice psychoanalysis taken away because I disagreed about the history of psychoanalysis. And that issue, which uh, you can easily find on the internet, had to do with the sexual abuse of children. I maintain that it was real and that Freud knew it was real, that there were lots of documents that nobody had seen, letters between Freud and his colleagues showing that there was a great deal of turmoil around this issue, but it had been kept back from the public and from other psychoanalysts. And when Anna Freud, Freud's daughter, allowed me to see this material and even quite generously allowed me to publish it, well, you could say that all hell broke loose. The analysts were not happy with this. And so instead of facing the issue, they decided they would rather destroy the messenger. That was me. But I think it was fortunate because it sent me to my first love and my real love, which was the emotional lives of animals. That's what I really wanted to investigate. And also I was intrigued by the fact that humans I think Freud was right on many issues, just not about abuse. And one of the things he taught us is that humans are capable of denial. And it occurred to me because they have an unconscious, they often push their emotions into the unconscious, cannot retrieve them, cannot experience what they're actually feeling, or they can't articulate what they're feeling. He called this denial. He gave uh, the common example of people who are angry and will not admit they're angry. Uh, but he also gave a very beautiful example. He said, a man can be in love with a woman for many years and not know it until years later. And I thought, hmm, now that doesn't apply to dogs. <laughs> in fact, I don't think it applies to any animals. I don't believe that any animal has an unconscious and that they're capable, in fact, of denying what they're feeling. So you know very well when a cat is annoyed with you, they don't pretend otherwise. 
and never seem to be annoyed with us. They just love us. And that love is on the surface. Doesn't mean it's not deep. It's very deep. But we recognize it. They recognize it. There's no question of um, not knowing what they're feeling. So that intrigued me. Now, that still has not been explained by science yet. I don't think we have any good explanation for why animals seem not to maintain an unconscious. But I'm glad they don't. <laughs> still, back to my question. So that's why you want to write about animals? Because you think they're more honest? They're easier to understand than humans? Is that the reason? No, that was not the reason. The reason was I wanted first to understand whether in fact, now you must remember this is like 25 years ago and um, there was not a lot written about the emotional lives of animals. In fact, since Darwin, and that was in 1872, he maintained, I think quite correctly, that animals are very much like us in terms of their emotional lives. But that was sort of lost after that. And it took a long time for scientists, especially animal scientists, to recognize this. What they tended to do was say, oh, well, if you're an ordinary person, you think your dog loves you or your dog's disappointed or your dog is happy or expressing joy, that's just anthropomorphism. You are just projecting your own feelings onto your dog. We have no scientific evidence to indicate that any animal feels anything at all. Well, that's false. And we now know that's false, but it took a long time. So my first endeavor was to try to understand, A, why people believe that. B, was it true? No, it wasn't, obviously. And I think one of the reasons that my first book, which was called When Elephants Weep, did so well, that is, it sold a million copies, not because it was such a great book, but because it really vindicated what so many people already knew, but which science was denying. They knew if you live with a dog or a cat or a bird, or even if you just had almost cursory contact with any animal, you understood that they had feelings just like we do. But science said, no, they don't. So there was a, a great shift. That, and today, I don't believe there are hardly any scientists who would deny that animals have emotions. I wanted to take it further. I wanted to look at, and still want to do that, and still have not really succeeded, trying to see if it's possible that some animals may have some feelings that we don't even know. And that's a, now it's very difficult. I'm, I'm sure I can, I can see by your slight skepticism. Well, how would we know if we don't know? How would we know? Good question. But the other um, interesting problem for me was, is it possible that some animals feel our emotions even more deeply than we feel them. And when I first suggested this at, at a couple of talks, I noticed that people got very upset by it, especially scientists. And I, I, I couldn't quite understand because we recognize, of course, that animals are our superior physically in all kinds of ways. I mean, they swim in the ocean, they go under underwater for hours, they fly in the air, they're much stronger, they're faster. I mean, there's so many things that we acknowledge that animals can do that we can't do in terms of smelling, seeing, whatever it is, we don't have a problem. But if you tell someone, I believe dogs may feel love more deeply than we do, they're outraged. But 
logically, there's no reason why they shouldn't have access to deeper emotions than mm. we do. So that was something I wanted to explore. I can't say that I've been entirely successful. I think that'll, that'll come in the future. I think people will start looking at that. Well, I can give you an example that dogs do feel emotions because when I start arguing with my wife, our dog <laughs> knows exactly I better get out of here and, and goes outside. Once we finished arguing, he's coming back in. Interesting you should bring that up. I noticed that too um, with my first wife. That's never happened with my second wife because I never argue with her. <laughs> I've learned my lesson. Just agree. She's always right anyway. But my first <laughs> wife, we had, we had lots of um, quite loud arguments. And our dog at the time, Misha, um, a German shepherd, hated this. He would run out of the room. And, you know, it's actually an interesting question. Why does a dog not want to hear people argue? Uh, I think it's a little bit like a child. No child wants to see their parents arguing because for one thing, they think, gee, I wonder what this means for me. Are they going to take it out on me? Are they going to abandon me? Are they going to split up? And I think dogs feel the same way. They don't want that. Dogs like harmony. They're right. <laughs> harmony is good. <laughs> Argument is bad. Now let's go back to your latest book, Lost Companions. Um, Believe it or not, I read it within 24 hours, and um, it has a lot of... You're the first interviewer who has said that. Everyone begins by saying, now I have to admit, I have not read your book, <laughs> but, but I have glanced at it. <laughs> right, thank you. Thanks for your compliment. Well, I did skip one or two chapters. I just sort of briefly went through it. But Which anyway, ones did you skip out of curiosity? Uh, one that we talked more about cats. Cats know more about death than we suspect. And since uh, it's a dog podcast, I thought, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's not relevant to me. Yes. Anyway, so there are lots of stories, moving stories in this book about dogs and other pets, of course. And it's about the special bond between dogs and their people. And it's about the grief that people feel when their special dog dies. I assume countless people must have told you stories about their pets and you heard them all, but I still would like to weave a story around my next question, and it's a story about loss, as you would expect. And one I realised after I read the book, many other people have already told you, and that story is that when my father died, I didn't feel a sense of loss and I did not feel grief. However, when my second dog in my life died, unexpectedly, I could not stop crying for days and tears were just running down uncontrollably. And I started to ask myself, is this actually normal? And how can you be more sad about the death of a dog and animal than the loss of your own father? And that was more than 30 years ago. If that would happen to me today, would that be more normal? Has our society by now accepted that we see dogs as a member of the family and that we are allowed to be sad or to grieve when they die? Well, I believe, I mean, that's very interesting because I've heard this from many people and people generally are a bit embarrassed to say that, that when a member, whether it's your father, your mother, um, uncle, aunt died, that they did not feel the same sense of loss as when their dog died. But I do hear it a great deal. In fact, I know you don't want to talk about cats, but there was a very <laughs> remarkable article published recently in England 
where the author, a very well-known writer, wrote that when my father died, I did not feel the kind of grief I felt when my cat died. Now, of course, the first thing that you have to wonder is what kind of a relationship did they have with their father? So it may well be that that's entirely justified. I would be very surprised to hear that I love my father more than anyone on earth, but I did not cry when he died. And I did cry when my dog died. <laughs> However, there is, this, there is this difference that a dog does give you unconditional love. And it's probably true. I mean, this is a, a, a statement that I, I think many people will be shocked by, but I do believe it's real, that possibly no human can love you as much as a dog can love you. So there's absolutely no ambivalence in it. And when people experience this, it, it's a wonderful feeling to know, I, I know this is very true of children, you know, the dog is never gonna tell the child, don't do that. The dog is just there to love them, never corrects them, never gets annoyed with them or angry with them as, as a parent often does. So that experience of pure and unconditional love is probably unique in nature. I don't think there are any two species in the wild that love each other the way a dog loves us. So to lose that is a great loss. And, and of course we're gonna grieve it. And of course people who haven't experienced it don't understand it. <laughs> Is that the unconditional love that makes us uh, uh, mourn so intensely? Is that the answer to it when a dog dies? Well, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't, that's one of, the, one of the elements, certainly, is that it is unconditional love. Another one, I know that my, my son, who's now living in Brussels, um, and when our dog died not um, just a year ago, he was uh, uncontrollably miserable and unhappy and sad. And I asked him why, and you know, it was kind of obvious for him, but he said, well, dad, I grew up with this dog. This dog slept with me every night of my childhood. <laughs> you know, he was the closest companion I had. And when anything was bad, I could tell him <laughs> you know, what was going on, not that the dog understood, but the dog understood the emotions and was always there to comfort him. Um, so it was a unique relationship, but I think there are probably other things I, I, I don't quite know. I mean, there is, you know, the thought that you'll never see this animal again that's been so close to you, always there, always happy to see you. you know, every time you come back from wherever you are, the dog is, oh my God, I'm so glad you're back. And we don't get that that often from other people. Sometimes, oh, nice to see you again, but they often don't mean it. Yeah. And the dog really means it. He's really, she's really happy to see you again. So that's a big loss. Is there a correct or appropriate way of how to mourn? Well, the only thing that's correct is that nobody can tell you when it's enough. So if somebody says to you without sensitivity, look, you've been mourning for three weeks, three months, get over it, that's enough. Get another dog, go out, um, forget about it. It's only a dog. That's wrong. And I believe now that most people would probably recognize that, that we don't have the right to judge another person's 
mourning, the depth of that mourning, the length of that mourning, it's really not up to us to say, even to a child. So I would not tell Ilan, our son, okay, Ilan, that's enough now. Um, you've got to get on with your life. He's entitled to grieve for as long as he wants. And some people will say, I'm going to grieve for the rest of my life. Well, sure. Why not? I mean, it, it's not our business to stop you. Well, in your book, you say more or less that hearing other people's story about the death of their dog will help in, in a similar situation. My question is, you seem to be quite taken by the story of the woman in Berlin about her dog, Jack. Uh, I don't know, could you tell us that story and, and why it did leave such an impression? Well, if, it made a deep impression on me because it, it was the first story I heard once I had decided to write this book. I, I mentioned it to, to this woman. She was an Italian, a very um, elegant, uh, very accomplished woman in her field, married to an equally accomplished man who did not feel the same way about dogs as she did. And I was telling her, she wanted to convince me, no, she wanted to convince her husband that he should get a dog. So we went to a restaurant. I love the fact that in Berlin, dogs are very welcome in restaurants. So we brought Benji, our golden lab, to an Italian restaurant. And the Italians made a great fuss of what, you know, what a beautiful dog. And he sat right there and, and ate with or watched us eat. And the husband, by the end of it, he said, well, you know, you've got a point. Lovely dog, lovely dog. And then I, I said to her, um, what has been your experience? Have you ever had a sense of loss or of grief around the dog? Because our dog was already 13 at the time. And I thought for a golden lab, a big dog, he's not going to live much longer. And I'm I was starting to think about it and, and feel sad. And then she told me her story that she had been quite wild. I think it was in South Africa, had a very wild kind of youth and did a lot of drugs and she had a dog. And when this dog, Jack, died, it completely turned her life around. She felt that for the first time, she was able to get in touch with her own feelings and realize that she was smothering these feelings by doing drugs. And when, when Jack died, suddenly all of these feelings came to the surface. They welled up in her and she said, it completely changed my life. From that moment on, I never touched drugs again. And then she was wild and then she became this very successful person. I don't give her name because um, she asked me not to. Uh, but that, that was the first story I heard like that. And I, I think there must be more, but that one was particularly impressive. It sounds like a, a dramatic change in her case. You know, she probably got off drugs, uh, but it does change something in you when when a dog dies because uh, a dog owner does feel responsible for their dog. And I can tell my own personal story too that I lost a puppy uh, because I wasn't careful enough. The puppy uh, got hold of some poison that I didn't know was poison and died in my arms. And that sort of made myself made me question myself, my, my sense of responsibility. Uh, so I, th I suppose that happens to probably every dog owner when their dog dies, that they feel some kind of guilt. Tell me, 
so I, I take it you've had other dogs since then. Yeah. And how, how have you handled the grief? How, how have you dealt with it? Oh, I just, I, I, it was just horrible. I just cried, 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 cried till uh, I was dried up. <laughs> and it never goes away. Uh, why do to... you think that is? Well, you did outline it before because they sort of give you unconditional love. They're, they're companions and a companion says it all. A companion is with you everywhere, anytime, under any circumstances and stays a companion and that's something that you can hold on to. And if you don't have that anymore, well, you get used to it too and it makes your life shinier and brighter as well because you can share it with, with someone else, with some other being. And all of a sudden it's not here anymore. That's a great loss. Yes. I take it your father was not your... No, no, he wasn't. You know, I, I didn't, didn't have a great relationship with him. Uh, anyway, so I have one last question because you talk also about healing rituals that uh, memorialize lost dogs. And I suppose a funeral is, is such a ritual. So are you saying that we could or should have proper dog funerals the same way we say goodbye to lost humans? Well, I was surprised at how strongly people felt about this. I did not. So I was, I'm not a ritual person. I don't generally engage in memorializations. But my editor pointed out to me that most of my readers are people who want to have something concrete that they can hold on to, a ritual or a memorial. And so what I did is I, I put this out to my so-called friends, 3,000 of them on Facebook, <laughs> and got back, not people I know, obviously, but got back a very strong response. And everybody who wrote to me agreed that you must do something. And they told me what they did. So a lot of the women put on a tattoo of the animal. Um, people would plant a tree in the forest in their honor. They would take the ashes to their favorite spot in the woods and, and bury it there. They would have an urn. They would write poems. They would have a, a gathering. And sometimes they would have an actual funeral. And I think that's a good thing. I, unfortunately, when my dog, our dog died, I was in Australia here in Sydney. And my wife, I was taking care of our younger son. And my wife went to Munich to be with our older son and our dog, Benji for his last few weeks. It was very hard on them and it was very hard on me. And there was a kind of spontaneous ceremony because he was at a campsite that her cousin owned and everybody had only been there for a few weeks, but this was a dog. I wrote a book about him called The Dog Who Could Not Stop Loving. He loved everybody. He loved people, he loved cats, he loved horses, he loved rabbits, he loved rats, he loved other dogs. So he had this amazing capacity for love and people recognized it and they were very upset when he died and they kind of spontaneously gathered and said goodbye to him. So that also alerted me to the fact that it is a good idea to try and do something a bit more formal. And it also allows you to see other people who recognize your grief and accept it. Mm. And you feel a bit more normal when you do that. 
Yeah, you might have triggered a new trend because the pet industry hasn't discovered it yet. Dog funerals could be big, big, big Dog business. Great idea. <laughs> Go for it. Jeffrey yeah. <laughs> okay. Mason, the author of Lost Companions Reflections on the Death of Pets. I thank you very much for the talk. A great pleasure. Thank you. Jeffrey Mason's book, Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets, has been published by Murdoch Books. I enjoyed that interview very much, even that it actually at some point turned into an interviewer's nightmare when the interviewee unexpectedly takes the scepter into his hands and begins to quiz the interviewer. The rulebook says this must never happen. Well, it did and I happily told Jeffrey Mason how I handled my dog's death. My advice to you, if someone lends an ear to your dog story, do tell them it helps. Death is not an uplifting subject. Most of us try to avoid the topic. However, death spares no one, no dogs and no humans. And there comes a time when we are forced to face it, either with your own death or with the death of a family member, your grandmother, your father, your sister or your partner. And you find yourself all of a sudden in the middle of a hard and painful time, a time of grief, and you have to organize a funeral. Not many of us are familiar with the process of it, so you go to a funeral home, to professionals. Simplicity Funerals at Osborne Park in Perth, Australia, is such a funeral home. There, one not only finds all the practical aspects of a funeral, but also some very precious and special comfort by Billy, an 11-years-old Border Collie Cross Kelpie. And Billy's companion, or let's say owner, is Bronwyn Medhurst. She's also the director of Simplicity Funerals. Bronwyn, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Adrian. How did it all happen? When did you realize that your dog, Billy, has this special ability or skill to comfort grieving families? It happened by accident that he came into the funeral home with me one day. Uh, we received barking at home or I received barking complaints at home and I had tried everything um, and I just was at a point where I just said to my boss I can't think of anything else right now can I bring him in and he can just stay in our office and you know he'll be good <laughs> the moment he came in he was a completely different dog so he's normally, obviously, a Border Collie Kelpie is a cattle dog um, and he's used to wanting to round things up. When he came into the office, he just calmed. He became this very quiet, subdued um, dog that just seemed to find his place. Did you figure out how how it happened that he calmed down all of a sudden. I know border collies are, are okay, but Kelpies are really active dogs. And him coming into your your company, calming down all of a sudden, have you an explanation for that, why, why that, that is so? I don't. Um, I feel, though, that 
he has a reason. He knows that that is his job is to comfort um, people. Like it, it was just like he found his place. How does he show it? How does he, what does he do to people? So often um, we will always inform people that we have a border collie as they come in the door, that there is a dog on the premises in case they're not happy. But often it's them standing talking to us and then they'll feel a wet nose on their hand. He'll just gently nudge um, to say, hi, I'm here. Um, please pat me, <laughs> pretty much, you know. Um, when we come into our arrangements, um, when we sit with families in the arrangement room, he will often follow us in if the family are happy. Um, and you will tend to find he will find the person who needs the most comfort out of the group um, to be sitting beside. And he just places his head on their lap when they're sitting there most of the time. Does that uh, surprise you every time, uh, him figuring out who needs most comfort? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not something that I've trained him to do. This is something that's come instinctively to him. Yeah, even for us as staff members, he manages to find the one of us that's probably having our most difficult day and will give them the attention, even though we're a team of six here at um, Osborne Park, he will find the one who needs that comfort. I suppose at this stage we can call him a miracle dog. I'm sure people have uh, said that before, haven't they? They adore him and adore what he gives to them or takes from them, I guess. What kind of reactions do you see in people? How do they react when they get comforted by Billy? Oh, look, he's asked for when they, re when they come back, when, you know, obviously there's a lot of things to organise pre-funeral. So, you know, we have to get photos and we have to get clothes and things like that um, from the family. So they often do have to come back into our office and it'll be, is Billy here? Can we see Billy? Or in some cases, it's the day of the funeral service where they're bringing their children or other members of family, is Billy here? Can they meet him? You know, it's not about us, it's about him. <laughs> Billy has been an active part in your company for about two years. And uh, do you notice that uh, grieving families are choosing your funeral home because they heard of Billy? They are definitely coming back because of Billy. Um, I don't know if his story's out there enough yet, um, you know, because we... It was just by luck that we brought him in. You know, he was never going to be something that I shared to the world because at the end of the day, he's my companion. <laughs> um, but, yes, I will always now shout his story. And if a family chose because of Billy, then, of course, then that's perfect. Is he only based at your company's headquarter? I think he said before something that he does sometimes attend funerals. Is that so? Yes, he has attended funeral services at, at church. He was welcomed. We, obviously, it was on his lead. He met and greeted everybody. Um, I, as an owner, am probably very protective. I don't like him to take to places where I don't know the security of the grounds around him. I don't ever want for him to be overwhelmed by things. 
Um, so he tends to stay more in the funeral home and meet and greet here because that's probably where he's most comfortable. He is quite an anxious dog, um, pre-funeral home life. Um, but yeah, he seems calmer in the office. Has it ever gone too far in uh, comforting people? Have people then felt intimidated by him? Did he ever then have to whistle him back? I've never had never had that response um, from a family. Um, and again, you know, I, I'm probably the one who's most paranoid about having him here um, for one, knowing not to let him overstep the boundary. Um, and never once have I had a reaction that he's been too much from a family. Have you ever been approached by dog behaviourists or have you ever thought of taking him to a, to a dog behaviourist just to find out what it actually is that drives him, why he reacts that way, why he has got that ability? I've never considered it. Um, I would love to know as to why he does or how he does. But no, I've just been, I've just considered it lucky that I can have him with me every day. Now, Billy does sound like a beautiful dog and he is a miracle dog. We found that out by now. Uh, but it only is a shame that probably one does not necessarily want to meet him because he's most of the time at the funeral home and uh, people do not necessarily like going to a funeral home because there is always a sad reason behind it. So do you take him for walks to a park, I assume? And when you do so, how do people there react towards him? Because he then is not in his element. Is he, is he a different dog in a park, in a public park? We tend to um, walk late at night because as much as he's perfect with people, he doesn't like other dogs. So um, the funny thing is when he travels in my car, my windows are right down and I will have people that the lights go, hello, buddy, you know, or when we're parked in a, you know, at the garage or something like that. I have people approach the window to want to talk to him because he just has one of those smiley little faces that is beautiful. Um, so he's not, he's very welcome to everybody, even outside of the workplace, um, but not so much if there's another dog. He was beaten up as a pup by another dog, so um, yeah, it's a bit antisocial that way. Do you ever feel jealousy when uh, Billy is more popular than you are or one of your staff members is? <laughs> hmm. Do you know, sometimes you kind of go, wait, I'm, I introduce myself as Billy's owner. That's probably the way I'm known as Billy's mum, you know, so it's Billy. And then there's Bron, Billy's mum. <laughs> mm, yeah. A star child. <laughs> well, I was asking that question because uh, you, as a funeral director, it's not just a hands-on practical chore that you have to do because you have to have uh, people knowledge. You, you need to know how to talk to people because they're all grieving, they're very vulnerable 
uh, it needs you know you need to have a special people skills and uh, so are you edging each other on or sort of teaching each other how to react to people do you learn from Billy or does Billy learn from you do I learn from him I think I learn from him all the time how to be less um, you know sometimes you don't have to be in people's faces like that sometimes it's the more gentle approach just to step back and allow that person that space to be um, and that's definitely something Billy teaches all of us I think is to allow with all of us here we all know that Billy comes first within our team generally with families so all of our arrangers are on that same equal um, playing field when it comes to Billy the dog I don't feel that there's um, anything within us as a team I think as arrangers we have to know people skills like you say to read people and to know and often that grief will um, bring about a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings and sometimes a lot of responses that aren't necessarily directed at us but because we're a human face for the grief to be issued at whereas they don't tend to take that to Billy the dog they are allowed to be different with Billy rather than a human I think yeah it would be a bit awkward if you placed your head on on your clients legs <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. it would be awkward anyway, good so as i said i would love to meet billy but under different circumstances which i hope is understandable and uh, i wish you uh, many many more beautiful times with billy and i'm really happy to hear that he has the, the skill to comfort people which is in, in uh, around that time and people do come to you, it is very important. Bronwyn Methurst, Funeral Director at Simplicity Funerals at Osborne Park in Perth, Australia. I thank you very much for your time and please say hello to Billy. I will. Thank you. Thank you for hearing Billy's story. Time for a new episode of the audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. We are up to chapter 14. If you have joined us today and have no idea what has happened so far in this story, then I recommend you better catch up. You can go back to the Top Dog podcast episode number 18, where we started with the audiobook with the first chapter. It's worthwhile because it is an interesting Top Dog episode anyway. We talked to Calvin MacDonald, the manager of the beer company BrewDog in Brisbane. BrewDog is offering its staff maternity leave for dog owners, so-called paternity leave. Anyway, back to the audiobook, Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. What do we know so far? Pirate, a lost bird who suffers amnesia, is being looked after by a bunch of dogs, Stelzi, Ajax and Hoover, and the cat Buddha. As he grows up, he realizes that he's neither a dog nor a real bird because he can't fly, but he knows how to bark. 
During a thunderstorm, Pirate has a déjà vu moment and remembers vaguely the journey that brought him to the dogs in the first place. Stelsey, his foster dog mum, has decided to take him home. It's a journey full of challenges. In the last episode, we heard that Stelzi was bitten by Tiger, the snake. A very venomous snake, so Stelzi's life is at stake. The other dogs, Ajax and Hoover, and the cat Buddha, rushed to help. And it is now up to Pirate to find the other kookaburras as quickly as possible, because only they will be capable of locating Tiger and take her to the hospital where Stelzi lies for the doctors to figure out what kind of anti-venom they need to inject Stelzi with. However, the big question is, will we know? Will we find out if Stelzi will survive? Every minute and every action counted in order to save Steltz's life. Buddha and Hoover were finally with her. Her pain had eased, but she was now complaining about being very weak and short of breath. Hoover managed to pull her back into the shady spot. Buddha had chewed off a bunch of grass. With his mouth, he firmly wrapped the long stems around Steltz's ankle, above the spot where she was bitten. It will slow down the blood flow. We have to make sure the poison is not running into your heart. Ajax was back at the farmhouse. He scratched at the door and barked until Steltz's master stepped out, wondering what was going on. Ajax kept making a fuss. He ran to the ute and back to the door and back to the ute, yelping and barking. Bloody awful, he actually was saying. Don't you get it? Hop into your bloody ute and follow me. Hurry up! Steltz's master eventually understood. He followed Ajax, who ran ahead as fast as a whirlwind to the boulder in the paddock. Pirate was less fortunate. He still had doubts about looking for the kookaburras. He was afraid of their nastiness. At the same time, he was devastated about Steltz's snake bite. He feared she would die. The tears in his eyes were the result of all of his worries. Because of them, he could not see a thing. No wonder he didn't realise that he was approaching the end of the paddock. As he felt the rocky ground under his claws, it was too late. He shot over the top of the cliff. He fell down the gorge, and with a big splash like an explosion, he hit the icy cold water of the pool. His body froze. He could not move and went under. He sank down to the bottom of the pool into a silent darkness. Strange pictures popped up in his head. He saw Steltzer sleeping next to the boulder. But it was not the one he had left her at. It was the whistler. It still had the stick in its pointy mouth. It was flicking like the tongue of a snake. The mouth grew bigger. So too did the stick, while the whole head was swaying. Suddenly, the boulder opened its mouth, 
revealing two giant pointy teeth. With a big roar, it went down on Steltzer. No! Pirate shouted. Steltzer must not die! Trillions of air bubbles flowed out of his beak. As he tried to breathe in, he swallowed a bucket load of water. It threatened to suffocate and kill him. But Pirate refused to die. He needed to live. He had to help Steltzer. Steltzer would not survive if he did not find the kookaburras. He had to convince them to help him, whether they bullied him or not. It didn't matter. It was Steltzer who mattered now. With all his might, he wriggled and jiggled his whole body. The claws, the legs, the wings, the head, and pushed himself back to the surface. Coughing and spluttering, he crawled onto the bank where he collapsed. It's that stupid parrot again. Pirate looked up. The kid kookaburras were gathering around him. They had flown by when they heard the splash and wondered what had happened. He smells like a wet dog. I think he wants to become a fish now. Yeah, a stinky dead fish. Let's throw him back into the water. Pirate cringed. Not because he was frightened by the naughty kookaburras. He cringed because he felt a tickling in his chest. A very angry tickling. It grew bigger and turned into a hammering. Weighty iron plates were banging against each other, stronger, faster and louder, until Pirate feared his heart was going to explode. He jumped onto his feet and spread his wings wider than ever. He had had enough of the kookaburra's silly talk. His anger was throbbing in every fibre of his body. He now stood tall and strong, ready to fight the enemy with all his might. Soaked, the wet feathers pointing away from his trembling body like sharp knives, he screamed at the kookaburras. I'm not a parrot. I'm not a fish. I am pirate. I am a kookaburra. Then he growled. <laughs> then he barked. Oof, 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 oof. And growled again. <laughs> the kookaburras took a step backwards. Pirate, a step forward. Steltzer got bitten by Tiger. We must help her. We must find Tiger and deliver her to the hospital. The veterinarian needs her for the anti-venom. Otherwise, Steltzer will die. You must help me now. <laughs> the kookaburras looked at Pirate in astonishment. The little one hid behind the big one. Eventually, he said, I saw Tiger just before. Up there. At the top of the gorge. Let's go and get her now. Without hesitation and without a word, the kookaburras took off, flying towards the top of the cliff. Hey, wait for me, Pirate said, flapping his soaked, heavy wings. But the kookaburras didn't hear him, and Pirate had to climb all the way back through the narrow and steep path to the top of the cliff. Up there, he could hear the kookaburras yelling. Three of you, to the right, the others to the left. I'll take her from behind. I'll take her from the front. We'll take her in the middle. Everybody, get on now. 
the kookaburras had formed a row and lunged at Tiger all at once. Their claws tightened around her skinny body. They sat on Tiger like birds do on a perch. Their weight pushed her down into the ground. She was trapped. She had no hope of escape, was not able to move an inch. The little kookaburra gave her a whack on her head. Ouch! Will you stop that at once? You're hurting me, little To the hospital! Pirate commanded, jumping onto the snake between two kookaburras. With tiger in their claws, they lifted off. blowing into Pirate's face and he had already dried off his feathers. Looking down, he felt dizzy. But the wonder of what he saw was far greater than any fear or worry. His eyes could see and grasp everything at once. The world underneath him had shrunk into one big playground, scattered with trees, houses, boulders and sheep as little as tiny toys. Pirate felt like a giant, like a fearless giant bird circling the sky. Up here, he was strong and safe. His claws firmly wrapped around Tiger's body, he now watched how the kookaburras flapped their wings. He copied their moves, was sometimes a bit slow, sometimes too fast. But soon, he caught up with the rhythm. He pushed up his wings and held them still for a split second before he forcefully pulled them down again. You can fly, said the big kookaburra. Like a real kookaburra. Yes, pirate could fly at last. What for? For helping me. It's all right. That's what friends are for. I am sorry. What for? For teasing you. It's all right. After all, we are friends. On the other side of a hill, where the village with the hospital was, the kookaburras and pirate set their wings at an angle. They quickly lost height and now drifted down in a smooth circle towards the hospital. There they are! Pirate shouted. He could see Ajax, Hoover and Buddha looking through an open window. After a swift dive, the kookaburras flew over their heads straight through the window into the veterinarian's surgery. There, they dropped Tiger on a table. Buddha, Ajax and Hoover were all making a fuss at the same time. They barked, yelped and meowed until the veterinarian and Steltz's master came running. Bloody offal and bloody fishbone! They were actually saying, Don't you get it? She's the snake who bit Steltzer! Hurry up! The veterinarian and Steltzer's master eventually understood. What happened after, no one could witness. Steltzer was in a different room behind closed doors 
and the veterinarian had shut the window. There is nothing we can do anymore, said Buddha. Let's go home. Oh dear, will Stelza survive? Now, I suppose you will have to listen to the next episode of Top Dog Podcast. And if you can't wait that long, you have the opportunity to actually purchase the whole audiobook Pirate the Barking Kookaburra. You will find more information on the website www.bubenberg.com or on the website www.topdog.space. Pirate the Parking Kugabara is also available as an e-book and paperback. The website again, bubenberg.com or topdog.space. And that's it for today. You find Top Dog Podcast everywhere on the net or on your favorite podcast portal. And remember to leave a comment that will alert others that we exist. You can also write to us if you wish, adrian at topdog.space or visit our website topdog.space where you find many, many more episodes. I'm Adrian Plitzko. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>